Hello and welcome to another episode of Cripple Stump. Sorry it's been so long, but you know, shit happens. Um, and today we've got another guest. So I'll hand over to the guest to introduce themselves. Over to you, guest. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Miriam Avery and um, I currently work as a mental health nurse and um, I'm currently in A&E um, I've only been there for about a year um, and I am also an aspiring mental health researcher, um, I would add on to that. Yeah, just to be clear for the kickoff that she's not actually in A&E right now. She, <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's not waiting to see a doctor or anything like that, as far as I'm aware. I'm not, I'm at home. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So just to kick us off then, could I ask you what, what, um, what created your interest in this particular field as a child? Uh, I mean, I definitely didn't know I was interested, um, you know, until I was well into adulthood or early adulthood, um, I suppose. Um, I always thought I was going to be a lawyer and I was going to make loads of money. And I actually went to uni to study law and um, I hated it. Um, and after that, I just thought, uh, I think I need to do something that's real and probably trying to help people in some way it didn't feel that law was going to do that um or it felt that if it if it if it was it was going to be really tough and it was going to be really boring uh, in the process so um yeah i um i actually went back and did an english degree and just out of interest and after that, I was like, right, well, what do I do now? And it was actually completely by chance that I even found out that mental health nursing was a thing. I'd never knew um, that a mental health nurse existed until I met someone at a party. And uh, she said she had to leave because she had to get up in the morning. And um, I said, oh, what do you do? And she said, oh, I'm a mental health nurse. And it was like a light bulb kind of moment. And I was like that sounds amazing. That's what I want to do. Okay. Um, but I suppose looking back on it now, um, uh, my interest has probably grown out of my own experience. I struggled with my own mental health since I was very young. And um, also, I suppose I come from a family of carers. Um, my parents uh, fostered um, children with disabilities from when I was about eight years old um, and I suppose I guess maybe that's also sparked an interest in me from that perspective. Yeah thank you for that because uh, that's very interesting it makes me wonder like how, how much subconsciously do you think your interest in law uh, and that kind of thing has kind of helped you in your practice. I would I wonder that myself. It's like, you know. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess it probably has done because um I mean, I mean, really I wanted to be a human rights lawyer and yeah. uh, you know, um 
actually, you know, starting the course, I very quickly realized that most people were, were there for completely different reasons. And yeah. the focus of the course was, you know, um, really about kind of business law, um, which I didn't enjoy. So, um, yeah, I, I think I've always um, had an interest in, yeah, upholding human rights and, and what are human rights, really, and um, and how are, can people be supported to live, uh, you know, the most fulfilling life possible? Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned human rights because I don't know if you're aware, but the, this particular government that we're living under in the UK want to rip up the Human Rights Act for for us in, in this country. And, um, you know, it's just... Uh, it's just yet another thing for people on the margins of society that have to fight and then um, until you have to go up against this kind of thing, people don't realise these safety nets or these structures have disappeared and uh, you'd start looking around going, oh, so they can just deport me now or whatever, you know. But for me as an activist that that is another big fight coming down the road and yeah, uh, yeah so I, I just thought it was interesting that you said that uh, that that was what your initial uh, call feeling was that you wanted to help people and mm. uh, do that kind of work and it just so happens we need more human rights lawyers as it, as it is now. But, yeah, they um, probably all get put off on the courses by the enforced schmoozing and uh, yeah. general attitude of the other people on the course, which is what uh, put me off. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you, like, could you give me a con contrast if there was between your very first day like doing law course and your very first day doing and nursing, mental health course, what was the difference there? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I mean, the age difference for a start. <laughs> I was, um, you know, I was just 18 starting my law degree. And by the yeah. time I started my nursing, I suppose it wasn't that much older. I was 24, but it's a good six years um, of experience yeah. of independent living. I yeah. certainly felt uh, a lot older. Um, I think that uh, just the experience of gelling with other people on the course was massively different. You know, um, I felt like a weirdo on the law course. Mm. <laughs> I felt like such a weirdo and I really didn't feel engaged with the material that they were asking us to read. And um, yeah, I found it just quite dull um, I, I can't for the life of me recall my first day exactly um, but on the nursing course um, you know I quickly kind of made friends and it just felt easy and um, you know I felt like I really connected with quite a few of the tutors um, yeah. for sure and I felt so much more engaged with the, the material it felt you know it just felt real yeah I just think I just thought there would be there's an interesting contrast there, and I just wanted you to tell us because you're not well, not very often you get that sort of contrast, you know. And no. so, 
you you must from what I am picking up, you must have felt much more at ease being on the nursing course and being rooted in that kind of humanity kind of for want of a better phrase, yeah. you know. Because no, absolutely, yeah. Law to me seems like an abstraction. It seems, although it's about people's lives, it's not really getting down and dirty and being in A and E. You know, you don't get many <laughs> lawyers getting down and dirty in A and E. They they just have to deal with something after something's happened or something like that. Even if they get involved, they in do. It. I, I do think that, um, you know, once you get into it, certain fields of law are quite involved. Um, and um, I do a bit of kind of student mentoring on the side. And I was mentoring a girl that was doing the uh, one of the law courses, uh, the one of the kind of po the ones you do after your degree. Um, and she was actually kind of semi-traumatised because some of the volunteering work that she'd been doing to to gain experience had been you know supporting uh client legal clients with regards to traumatic experiences um and so I do think there is there can be quite an overlap but as you kind of said you know when you're at the studying stage it does seem so abstracted and I think uh, I struggled with that whereas the nursing course is a lot more practical yeah so how did you find yourself in the situation you found yourself where you were doing a and &E, uh, you were doing therapy in a and &E. uh, How did you find yourself there <laughs> during uh, the pandemic? Well, um, it, it, it's a fairly long story. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got time. Yeah. Uh, so previously, so my first job out of nursing school was in a young people's inpatient unit. And um, I worked there actually for um, six, six years. Yeah, about six years. Um, and that was um, extremely interesting, extremely rewarding. Um, but at a certain point, I couldn't really cope with it anymore. Um, some personal stuff going on and it kind of intersected, I suppose, with things that were happening on the unit and I was already making a move into um, a kind of more academic territory, research territory. I'd done a master's in research um, and I, I took the decision to, um, to head into a research focused post. Um, and um, that was in December 2019. <laughs> so I arrived in my research post um, with all the promise of uh, getting involved in some interesting mental health research. And um, then COVID hit and um, yeah, they canceled everything that wasn't COVID research. Okay. Pretty much. And okay, yeah. uh, I was redeployed to work on COVID research uh, at Manchester Royal. Um, so I was doing that for most of 2020, really. Um, mm. Yeah, from March to September, October. Um, and um, 
it was very interesting in lots of ways and very challenging as you can imagine um I really felt I was on the front line of something that was very important I was involved in testing the lateral flow tests for example to make sure that they work properly and um some of the treatments that we now have for COVID that we know work. Um, um, but I was just like, this isn't what I want to be doing, yeah. really. And um, I developed an interest in, they call it um, liaison work um, in mental health. So psychiatric liaison and uh, psych liaison is based in a, in a hospital setting. And their job is to really kind of try and bridge that gap between um a physical health focused setting yeah. and mental health care yeah. so um yeah we're based in A&E and um you, you see anyone that comes through the front door or anyone who's been treated in the hospital that yeah. has you know mental health needs um so um I just saw the job come up and I was like yeah I need to get out of this covid nightmare yeah. as it became and um I'm interested in this kind of work this liaison work and yeah I applied for the job and and got it So what what does that entail then Uh so um so day to day, it entails really picking up any referrals that are made to the team and they can come from um, one of two places. So one would be from a and front door. Yeah. So anyone that walks through A&E and um, has the, the primary presenting problem yeah. is a mental health issue um, or if they might present for a different reason and the staff might think there's something going on with this person's yeah, yeah. mental health they need an assessment um so that's one half of it the other half is um taking referrals from um any of the inpatient wards um so um patient comes in physical health problem being treated for that um either the 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 people looking after them are thinking like okay maybe there's someone treated depression or whatever else going on Mm. that they'll refer or it might be that they suspect there's a psychiatric cause for a physical problem um, Mm. and they they want further advice on that so do you actually give therapy or do you just assess them and pass them on to somebody else assess and pass on that is the that is the role um yeah we don't have time to do therapy in a e um there's very tight targets um yeah. you are supposed to have that person in and out of the department in four hours yeah. which is uh you know almost impossible a lot of the time because yeah. um you know often it's very tricky situations that you're being confronted with people have multiple problems um you know a lot of social stuff happening or safeguarding issues or um you know it or sometimes it's very difficult to safely discharge someone or to refer them on um, because of lack of services um so it's it's very challenging um yeah do do you think like austerity over the last 10 to 12 years has played a big part in 
your job being more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because if you haven't got like supposed houses to discharge people to or other services you could like not pass the ball to, but you know, signpost them to or whatever or you know, other community related things. Me personally, I think that would make your job harder. And I just want to know your perspective as to whether that being somebody in the position that you are, whether you would agree with that or would you think yeah, the wrong tree or what? No, no, I think I think that's correct. I mean, obviously I've not worked in liaison for that long, but you know, you can see the deterioration in community mental health services, for example, um, yeah. and you know, and speaking to uh, friends who have used community mental health services in the past and the difference you know from 10 years ago in what is provided in the community for people what kind of the level of support yeah. that's offered um, is absolutely astronomical and those teams are they're on their knees you know yeah. some of them have like no staff um, yeah. and so inevitably people um uh, become more unwell uh, in the community um, and um, you know they come to A&E through a lot of the time lack of being able to access any other support yeah. um, another issue is is GP practices now I know people at the moment are kind of like lambasting GPs for not being available but you know really they've not been funded properly <laughs> um, for a long time well, and they haven't, and I personally think GPs have become the new social workers where any problem you've got, you get signposted to a GP and the GP doesn't have, most of them doesn't have the first idea of the, the kind of services that used to be out there or let alone are out there, but they don't have any idea. So, and it's not fair on them, I don't think to be expected to be plugging so many different gaps and keeping the system going, you know? So yeah. I just think GPs, so just as well as people like yourself and frontline nurses get the rough end of the stick, you know? And yeah. you're just like battering rams that people can just have battering to you and oh you're resilient you'll you'll come through it you know you know what I mean but I, I just don't I'm not just saying this because you're sitting well you're virtually sat in front of me but um I'm not just saying this because of that I'm just saying I just don't think it's very fair and I, it's not even about it being fair I just don't think it's right and it's not the best thing for for the patient or for anyone you know Nobody wins out of it, is what I'm saying. No, they don't. And, you know, the amount of people I see that, have, you know, come to Amy out of pure frustration, really, and desperation, you know, mm. they didn't want to come to Amy, but they've literally been left with no choice. And yeah. it is, you are kind of picking up the pieces um, or doing your best to uh, in, you know, the space of four hours when you've got a gazillion other people waiting to be seen. And, 
you know, the whole department is run off its feet 24 seven. Um, you know, sometimes it's so busy, we don't have a room to even see somebody in, you know, mm. um, it's that bad. <laughs> um, it's that busy. Do you, do you ever wish that you ever sat behind a desk again doing research? <laughs> uh, so, um, yes and no. Um, I found it actually really difficult, being, even though I thought when I moved into that research job that I, like, I needed a break from the clinical stuff and I mm. wanted to be behind a desk and that, that would be a nice kind of, like, it would be more relaxing. I actually found it stressful um and I don't know why um but I've now actually got a bit of a balance so um I do a little bit of time every week um in a research role but it's a mental health research role now um in in addition to my clinical hours so I get to do a couple of days in A&E and I get to do a couple of days at a desk or working from home Um, and that seems to work well for me really. In the last couple of years there seems to be the whole rhetoric around mental health has changed right? Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of initiatives and adverts and all this and the other but what I'm keen to know of you just off your instinct, I mean, I know you're not an expert or anything, so I'm not expecting you to solve the world in a minute or whatever. But I, I, I just want to know from your, from your vantage point, do you think there, from, there's been a change on the actual ground and there's actually a real, people do actually want to get to grips with the mental health kind of epidemic that we're going through? even before COVID or, or do you think it's just nice furry words and, you know, <laughs> be as honest as you can. Yeah, I, I will, don't worry. Um, my partner and I talk about this all the time. Um, he's an assistant psychologist, so we just like have endless, endless mental health chat. Um, it's probably a good job we're together otherwise we'd just be boring everyone else with it but um I am leaning on the side of the fluffy words kind of uh, um analysis of of the kind of change in discourse around mental health um and I suppose my perspective on it would be it's great that people are aware of it yeah and that they're aware it's lovely and yes everyone has mental health or ill health you know in some degree and it's good for people to become aware of that and to be understanding of it etc um you can't I can't really argue with that aspect of it but it doesn't really translate into funding um uh, and support for mental health services for people with diagnoses of severe mental illness um or with you know complex psychosocial needs um at all um and I don't think that that public discourse takes into account that stuff I don't think most people are aware of it Mm. um you know the the kind of disabling nature um of you know 
lifelong schizophrenia, for example, or, you know, not always for everybody, but for some people, yeah. yes. Um, I just don't think that's really on the radar. And it certainly doesn't feel like it from the perspective of someone working in those services um, because they're just, you know, absolutely flat out and they yeah. are struggling to provide much of a service a lot of the time. And for me, it just feels that there's still a real stigma around mental health, you know. Yeah. You know, out there in society, there still seems to be like a, this is why I'm asking this question because I wanted to talk about it with somebody who's willing to talk about it because I I know we get all this uh, fluffy language and all these initiatives and yeah, but you need to we need to actually fund services better, have a lot more staff so the staff that are dealing with it aren't exhausted themselves because if you're exhausted what kind of service are you providing to anybody else you know <laughs> because that's that's it that's the idea i come at it from it's like hang on oh yeah you might be rushed off your feet but what kind of service am i am i am i getting or what kind of what, what level of my needs are being actually met by you because for all the will in the world, you're you're only one person. You know what I mean. I'm using you as an example, but you know, it's just to say one person can't do it all, and no matter how good they are or how bad they are, believe you me, there's probably bad therapists out there as well. You know, who make the job even harder. So, you know, so it's it's kind of difficult, and I just feel I'm. Um, I'm sick to the back teeth of just saying there needs to be more resources, but I need to keep saying it. Yeah. Because you, uh, and at least if you're not going to give more resources, don't be doing all these initiatives because it gives people false hope in a way. Yeah, it does. And that's it. You get, I suppose you've got probably more people seeking help for their mental health due to the discourse, only mm. to be disappointed when they realise that actually the help isn't really there or it's very patchy or yeah. it depends on where you live or you've got a huge waiting list to get, a, yeah. you know, therapy. Um, yeah. And, you know, and generally when people present saying I need some help, they need it then you know they don't need it nine yeah. months down the line um and like yeah. especially when you you can't afford to pay and on, on an nhs waiting list and you only get a cbt and you only get six sessions at a time yeah. and stuff like that and it's like yeah. you can't you're already starting to scratch the surface with six sessions Absolutely. and yeah. stuff like that so it yeah, I've started advising uh, people that I see in A&E and I, I feel terrible about this, but um, I just feel that I have to be honest. Uh, and, you know, when I assess someone, I think this person would really benefit from um, talking therapy yeah. of some kind. Um, and I will say that to them uh, and I'll tell them why I think that. And I will also say there is this NHS service. However, you will be waiting for months and yeah. 
if you can possibly afford it, these mm. are the reasons why going private is better. And I, it, it goes against everything, like my socialist heart to say that to people. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, you know, I've um, sought private therapy for myself and the difference is so vast from the offer that you get yeah. from the NHS. Um, you know, yeah. I'm privileged enough to have been able to do that. Yeah. Well, I, but I do think the NHS is something I want to come on to with you anyway, because it's a, it's a thing very close to my heart. So I wanted to talk to you about that as well. But the, the thing with the whole therapy thing is, I always say to people, if you can afford it, you know, like people go to the gym. Mm. Okay, they might only go in January, but if people that go every, all the time, I think going to a therapist should be like going to the gym. <laughs> Everybody should go. Like, yeah. Whether you, whether you need it or you don't, whether you think you need it or you don't need it, you should just go yeah. and just talk to somebody and like, you know, be yeah. done with it. You know? I agree. But, but for that, it needs to be af affordable. And, you know, I also think it needs to be regulated better. Because at the moment, yeah. Because at the moment, any any person could literally say they're a therapist and start charging. You know, they could. I mean, you know, my advice um, with that is that you need to look for for someone who is BACP registered. Yeah. Um, and you know, so there is regulation. Um, there yeah. is. Um, you know obviously you can be registered and still be a terrible therapist that's perfectly possible <laughs> you know yeah. um but you know um yeah but i know there have been some stories in the press recently about kind of unregistered therapists or therapists with this better help uh, organization that seemed to be popping up yeah. everywhere um I, i'm not sure exactly what their kind of qualification yeah. requirements are but um yeah um but i just advise people do your homework and make sure they are accredited by you know a recognized body because then if you do find that something isn't right or you know you know you come to harm as a result of therapy which is possible um then you can at least have that kind of um way of making a complaint or you know raising it with with, yeah. with someone that can do an investigation obviously i'm not asking you for details but can i just ask you to take you back a bit to the, you just mentioned before you started to do having therapy yourself a while ago mm -hmm. could i just mm -hmm. ask you what your your initial thoughts were when you went there it's like you know seeing it from a different perspective did you think, ah, this is a this is what people feel like when they come and see me or they see me for the first time? <laughs> uh, I don't know actually. Um, I mean, the the most recent therapist I've had, she has brought this up as a topic of conversation quite a bit uh, yeah. because obviously the dynamic is different if you're. The person that is usually in the professional yeah. role. <laughs> yeah. um, um, I, I haven't really had that thought actually about whether or not that's, you know, 
how people feel when they they see me um it haven't really like occurred to me that directly yeah. maybe not consciously <laughs> but subconsciously maybe as yeah well that's the thing that that's the thing uh, which this therapist is always like picking up on these things um, yeah. yeah um i always like to think of this podcast as a bit of a therapy session <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> so, yeah i just wondered what whether what it was like whether you thought about it like consciously what it was like on the other side because mm. that to me is like interesting yeah I mean I think that I always do try and um put myself in that person's shoes as to how they yeah. be feeling um especially to have come and presented to A&E um yeah. to ask for help with your mental health that's a really hard thing to do um, yeah, yeah. and you know I always try and acknowledge that with people and you know I try and make the process as comfortable as possible for them um which isn't always easy because A&E can be extremely chaotic um, and um it's not the nicest place to to be at the best of times let alone if you're having a mental health crisis um so I do I, I I do try and put myself in the other person's shoes really um and going back to what you were saying when you met that woman at the party, right? And hmm. she was saying she was getting in the morning, getting up in the morning to go to work. Yeah. And she was a mental health nurse. Going back to that moment and going back to what you, you do now, do you, is it a va- vastly more different than what you thought it would be? What I'm trying to get is, is the intensity a lot in more intense than you thought it would be if you were looking at it fresh. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Um, Yeah, I think I went into it completely blind, to be honest. Um, Really, having had no experience of, um, you know, anything other than going to the GP and saying, I feel a bit depressed, you know, um, and being given some antidepressants. You know, I had literally no clue about mental health services, what they looked like, how they were run, um, you know, who you might find on a mental health ward or, you know, so... I think that probably I had quite a very idealised view of what I was going into. Um, uh, Certainly, you know, initially. um, And I remember coming back from my first mental health placement. Was it my first one? No, it wasn't my first one. It was my first ward placement. um, And I held it together for the whole time, you know, 12 weeks or whatever uh, as a student. And the last day I got home and I just cried um and I think it it hit me really you know the intensity of it and what yeah. I was actually you know getting myself into yeah because I just think you you're proper especially where you are now you're probably on you're proper on the front line you know you know I don't yeah. want to overplay or, or underplay <laughs> but you especially in the middle of the global pandemic and everything else and the dismantling of the NHS has been going on for over you know, all, all my lifetime anyway, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So, you, so you're right there in the front line. So I, I was just thinking in that context 
going from that person thinking, oh, that'd be a nice job, to actually <laughs> be there. It was like, it was like being, being a soldier, as a, uh, playing toy soldiers as a kid, and then be, being a little... Oh, in the trenches is completely different. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just there, you know. Yeah, it's uh, it, it is probably quite a wild discrepancy. Um, and I think this is certainly the most intense job that I've ever had. Um, yeah, yeah it's uh, it, it it's the pace of it is just incredible. Um, yeah. You can't, you can't even imagine it sometimes. But is it, like, can it get like that way? You couldn't go back to a normal job now because cause that adrenaline kick or whatever is that so intense that you might just give you a, a call on the job you're like, oh, this is not real, you know? It, it's certainly quite, I think, addictive and um, the... the for me, it's the 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 interest aspect of it. Yeah. Um, you know, you are seeing so many different people every single day. Every person's got a different story. Um, you you can be seeing literally anyone. You know, I've assessed people who are multi millionaires before they've yeah. ended up in the hospital. Um, you know, I see asylum seekers, yeah. I see members of the homeless population, I see children, I see older people, you know, with really interesting histories. And, you know, you could see all of that in a day. Um, and, you know, I did, when I was doing my pure research post, I, I missed the stories. I, I, I missed hearing people's stories. Yeah. Uh, so, who therapizes the therapist then? How do you <laughs> how do you unwind? How do you disengage? Uh, with difficulty, I think. Um, I know so, you I mean, do music and all that kind of thing. But, uh, <laughs> does that yeah, really help I'm, you? I mean, yeah. Yeah, certainly in the past I've used music therapeutically. Um, I've had some pretty screamy bands and done DJing that's like quite a, a release or like dancing. Um, um, it's, it's kind of all gone by the wayside a little bit since the pandemic, um, which is a bit sad actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're out there putting out fires, so it's not... Yeah. You haven't uh, got time to play it. <laughs> play nice, have you? No, it's, uh, it is quite consuming. Um, yeah. It is really consuming. Um, and the last couple of years as well, I've been um, trying to get funding for a PhD. So when I've not been at work, I've been working on that. Um, yeah. Um, and that's obviously taken up some of my spare time as well. Um, but, you know, actually, more recently, I've got into uh, cold water swimming. All right. Um, yeah. Um, our friend and I have been trying to go every week um, uh, to sail water park. Like early <laughs> in the morning? Uh, no, we usually go in the afternoon, actually. All right. No, like five o'clock. You know, I've heard people do it at like five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Oh no, like, I, I don't get up at five unless I uh, really have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, what? You know? Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, but yeah, exercise, swimming, the sauna, that's yeah. that kind of stuff is yeah. probably the best way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so could I could we talk a bit about the NHS then? Because my yeah. big worry is, and it has been for a while, that we're we're moving towards an American style system. And we have been doing for a long time. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on this. Um, yeah, I mean, that's my exact worry. Um, I mean, when I go, when I go to try and uh, make a GP appointment, um, the system that they used to use where you could get a repeat prescription or, um, you know, make an appointment. And it used to have a selection of appointments that you could choose yeah. from yeah. for the coming weeks. Now it just directs you to private services. Yeah. It's as blatant as that. And, um, you know, um, it, you know, more and more people are feeling forced to, you know, access private healthcare if they can afford it because, yeah. you know, it, the stress of waiting, appointments getting cancelled, you know, especially with COVID, you know, you know, operations not happening or, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, uh, I don't know, yeah, how far it applies to mental health care. Um, I'm sure it will happen. Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just really scared about this, and uh, uh, you know about people who can't afford those those services or whatever. Even if you can, I mean, the bills go higher and higher and higher. You know, we'll start off paying a couple of quid, and then it'll be before you know it'll be a couple of pounds a year. And, yeah. All this kind of stuff and it it becomes like such a such a difficult thing. But I think in terms of activism, I think people have just got fatigued now, you know. We especially with something as so, so cherished cherished as the NHS where they keep hearing about it, but the the government successively keep coming back more and more and and just keep chipping away at it and you know before like I said to somebody years ago I was like you, you're doing it by piecemeal you know you're not yeah. it, it won't be a flick of the switch you'll be like one day we'll wake up and we'll go oh they have flicked the switch because all the infrastructure is in place and, and all we have to do is just rubber stamp it. And I'm, yeah. I'm just really worried. I mean, it's all relatively okay for people who can afford that, but, you know, you maybe only be able to afford that today, but what about tomorrow, five years down the line? You know? Yeah. So it's like, and then you get, like, a two-tier system anyway. And, as far, and the simplest way I can put it, I've never... And anybody in my entire life say the American system is great, you know? No. <laughs> so, you know, um, it's not as yeah. if, you know, you hear people go, oh, you know what you should have? You should have the American system, it's brilliant. <laughs> so, but people go, oh, it's too complicated. That's all you have to think about. Do you want the American system or not? So do you want the American system? 
do I? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, absolutely not. Um, I, uh, my whole understanding of it is it in so many aspects, it seems terrible. Um, you know, there's the financial aspect, but there are huge ethical implications, um, you know, with it as well. Um, yeah. You know, OK, yeah, it might be great to be able to choose the exact drug that you go on, but then, you know, at kind of what cost and who's benefiting from that um, as well. Um, and, and yeah, the, the whole profit motive and the whole pushing pushing a pill on you or some sort of therapy to make you a certain amount of money, you know, it's like, do I need this? Are you saying, or are you just telling me because I I need this because you can make more money out of me this way? You yeah, know? exactly. So it's like. Um, it, that's where it raises the ethical question to me. It's like, well, you say I need this, but could I just do this? That doesn't cost me anything. A lot. Yeah. It'd be far better for me, you know? Yeah, well, what's coming to mind uh, on this topic is um, Louis Theroux's documentaries. Um, there's, there's one um, about children who've been in the US been diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah. Um, you know, and medicated. And, um, you know, we are, even though diagnosis of ADHD and, and stuff is, is increasing here, you know, I know that, um, you know, you know, child psychiatrists that I've worked with anyway have been extremely careful about prescribing medication yeah. to children and young people. Um, whereas there's no, there's no incentive for them to do it unless it's really necessary. Um, and you just think, yeah, you don't know what the long-term impact of these medications is going to be. And really, the, you know, we're, we're, we're gaining a lot more understanding about the causes or potential causes of, you know, presentations such as, um, you know, what might, you know, be diagnosed as ADHD. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, you know, a lot of kind of speculation about the role of trauma and early experience and, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. And that as you were as you were talking there, the question that came into my mind then was when you were talking about what's in these things and the effects and the future effects. I was wanted to ask you while I, while you were here, was about vaccine uh, people that are hesitant about that vaccine. Have you come across a lot of that? Uh, people are hesitant about the vaccine. I mean, yeah, I have done. I have come across people who are hesitant. Uh, to be honest, because my, my immediate circles of friends and stuff don't seem to be too bothered about it. Um, I would say the people that I've seen that seem hesitant are kind of, you know, people that I used to know at school or yeah. don't vaguely know, you know, on social media or ever. Um, mm. um, but I... <laughs> I do understand it to an extent, and I had the privilege of uh, being um, in my little time uh, on the research job uh, doing COVID research to be involved in some of the vaccine trials. Um, And, you know, I I felt, uh, you know, suspicious, to be quite honest. Um, 
up until the point that I, you know, had some very good training from uh, one of the doctors that was running the trial and, you know, looking yeah. at all the mechanisms of action of the drugs and looking at the lineage of vaccine development and, you know, the safety profile really of uh, of these vaccines um, and the risk assessments. And, and after that, I, uh, you know, and I because I'd seen the research process as well, yeah. Um, I was just like, yeah, I'm completely converted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I would, I would say that it's also healthy to be a bit sceptical, isn't it? Really? It's healthy to be a bit curious as well. Yeah, yeah I think so. And I do think, you know, the one thing I'll say is like, yes, okay, we don't have, uh, you know, longitudinal data of no. the uh, effects really. But what we do have is, you know, previous vaccines that it's been developed on the back of, um, you know, that we yeah. do have that data for. Yeah, for, for me, it was just Im improving my chances of living and not getting it. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that's what, that's what I, it always comes down to for me. There's something out there that I can, I can have that will not, make me immune but will give me the better chance of not contracting it you know yeah uh, it will and you know I did see people dying in ICU yeah. you know um March April May June 2020 um and it was harrowing um yeah. and so you know and when you've got people that are saying like, oh, it's not real, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's, uh, it's just quite frustrating, really. <laughs> yeah. And that's the other thing that really get, gets my, my back up is, like, we, we get the daily, like, death rate. But we're so, we're so immune to it now. Like, we're so, you know, what was the word? We're so desensitized to it now. That oh, a hundred people die in the last twenty four hours or whatever is oh, that's nothing now. It just it become normalized. To a lot. Yeah, that's terrible for me. Yeah, it's I, I I find this issue tricky to think about and like to express my views about because um you know I don't agree with kind of normalizing uh, you know uh unnecessary death um but then there's also the case of you know at what point do you have to get on with living as well um and yeah. um you know if we were putting the numbers of you know how many people were dying of like every single different illness side by side every day or ever um I mean that would be interesting to see. Um, yeah, I'm sure someone's done that. Um, yeah, it's hard. But, but yeah, it's, but yeah, these these are the conversations I like to have. Though. Yeah, <laughs> this is what I get my kick from. I wanted to ask you about borderline personality disorder. Okay. What? Because uh, you've done a few papers on it and stuff, and like there were. Oh yeah, how about? Just one paper. Few years ago. Yeah, it was a few years ago. Yeah, that was um, I, I, in my final year of nursing, I had to write um, a report, a research report, and yeah. um, that was the topic that I chose. Yeah. Um, 
because I think I'd just through my you know placements I'd kind of you know this issue had popped out to me that um people with this diagnosis um it was the provision of care was really poor um yeah. and um so you know I was tasked with you know reviewing the research around it and um I focused on you know what's the evidence for actually you know what kind of services are helpful for people with this diagnosis um and it turns out that there is a quite bit of evidence uh, about what is helpful but that is not what is provided uh, in the yeah. NHS yeah 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 um, and it, it, oh, the, 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 you know the label of personality disorder is obviously quite a contentious yeah. one yeah because I, I just wondered what you you thought of it in recent times because you come I come across it all the time people say oh I'm borderline I'm borderline yeah. You know, but what, you know, it, it always makes you wonder, well, what does that actually mean? You know, do you even know what that, to that person that's saying they're borderline, do you even know what you're actually meaning by saying that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think plus, you know, you can, people say things all the time. Uh, yeah. And I just think you don't know what you actually mean by that like oh I'm schizo or I'm yeah. a bit OCD um and it's kind of a, a similar thing um where you know there's you know a serious like set of symptoms that, that yeah, this yeah. you know refers to um that really affect people's lives um mm. and it's not like a throwaway thing yeah. to kind of say that um, you forget people going I'm a bit autistic I'm like <laughs> have you got that tested what what, <laughs> what what is it that makes you think that you you're a bit autistic yeah yeah you know? <laughs> because you should just bandy it about like yeah I'm no. a bit autistic uh, or I'm a bit this and a bit that well coming on to that I was like do you have the same problem that GPs have like people come in Telling you what they have before you've even assessed them. Yeah, you do. Um, With the advent of the internet and all that kind of thing. Like, yeah. A quick Google away from. All the time, all the time. Um, and it, I don't know, it's that... tricky, like, because, uh, you know, in lots of ways, um, it might have been quite helpful for that person to, you know, research what they were experiencing on the internet and to gather a picture of you know something that might explain it or whatever um yeah. and you know some people might get quite annoyed at that as like a clinician you know um like oh well they don't have a diagnosis they're telling me that they've yeah. you know got bipolar or whatever and yeah. they don't um um, so I guess you just have to work with that person as to what their understanding of, you know, what their symptoms are and, you know, direct them to, because I can't diagnose someone, you know, um, oh. I'm not qualified to do that. Um, oh. It has to be a psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, but most people won't ever see a psychiatrist. Yeah. So, yeah, do you have Google your symptoms? Yeah, all the time. 
okay. I'm the worst for it. <laughs> like to see whether it was one room for one and one room for the other. No, <laughs> like that's why I would never like you know diss someone for it. You know, because yeah. I, I don't know who doesn't. I, I, yeah. I you know. Who doesn't Google what's wrong yeah. with them? Maybe I, I have done, but uh, yeah, yeah. But when I speak to G, GPs and stuff, it's out. You've got to know what you're googling for, you know. Yeah, and and the, with anything you Google, you're only three steps away from death, really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, absolutely. You have to be. That's why I have to be careful when it's like right. I'm googling this now. <laughs> I mean, this is all this oh, death, you know. So you have to be very careful. Yeah, is there any uh, bits of advice or things you would like to people out there to know about the service you provide or any misconceptions that people have that real bugbears of yours that you wish that the media or whatever would clarify or get straight um you get what I mean? yeah i mean sometimes people come i think thinking that that like we're gonna give them medication at a and e and you know we don't do that <laughs> yeah. um and i always feel a bit bad in a way because i like you've waited for like hours and what you re- you wanted was like an antidepressant and like yeah. that's not it, it you know like it is an emergency service um and so you know if you were thinking of coming to a and wanting some medication then that's not gonna happen um I I do I can write letters to GPs and stuff like that and, and advice you know that they yeah. need to prescribe or whatever um I don't know not that there has to be I just wondered no. if you you ever sit there and go, oh, I wish, wish they, they ever said this or something that's common, you know, that just a misconception or like I speak to GPs again, some people think GPs are not doing face-to-face appointments and they are doing face-to-face appointments. That's just a bugbear, for example, that they have, you know. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't like really see anything like much published about mental health liaison in the general press you know there's a lot about A&E like yeah. general A&E but um and yeah that's all like a lot of that's true you know there are ambulances like queuing yeah. outside and people are waiting for like 10 12 hours to be seen and it's awful um I'm not gonna disagree with any of that I see that you know <laughs> every week um yeah, no, I don't think there's anything kind of particularly. Um, so what is your actual job title then? Um, my job title at the moment is mental health practitioner. Okay. So, and you do a lot more than triaging, don't you? Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not just triaging. I mean, we're, you know, with the assessment that we are asked to complete for every single patient is really extensive you know um going into um past relevant past history medical stuff uh, social stuff obviously current symptoms risk assessment um you know it takes a while to write up um once you've finished assessing someone on on average if there's any sort of thing 
Well, how long would one assessment take that you would do it in a &E? So, depending on the person, um, yeah. I would say usually spend half an hour to an hour talking to them. Um, and then afterwards, I would say the shortest amount of time that it would take me to kind of write up the assessment and do all the like associated admin would be an hour and a half. And like that is best case scenario. That is, it was yeah. really straightforward. There's not much for me to do, but you know, yeah. And that's for one person. Yeah. Bloody yeah. Hell. Bloody hell, that's a lot. Yeah. But it, it can take, you know, it, it fairly often takes a lot longer than that if it's complex or you're having problems referring or the person needs to come into hospital um you know um there's a lot of arranging to do and telephone calls yeah. to make and being on hold to various organizations god is there anything you would like to say finally before we close the podcast uh, yeah, I'm going to do like a bit of like a weird promo. Um, so I mentioned that I obviously do a bit of research uh, in addition to my clinical role. And um, what I'm working on at the moment is um, recruitment for a trial for a new kind of OCD medication. Um, and it's not open yet, but it's going to be open in hopefully in about February uh, 2022. Um, and I would just really wanted to put it out there for anybody with an OCD diagnosis who might be interested in participating in a trial of a new medication, um, then, yeah, maybe you need to go on the... We haven't got a website set up for it yet, but um, just keep an eye, on, yeah. an eye out. Yeah, Is it UK-based people? Hey? Is it just for UK-based people? Yeah, the trial is actually running uh, globally. So the sponsors okay. are American and okay. uh, there are sites in Europe and um, there are going to be quite a few sites across the UK. There's not to be boasting, but this podcast goes around the world. So. <laughs> Woo! Um, so the website for the US trial is ocdtrial.org. Um, and they are going to be setting up a website for the UK as well. Um, but um, I'm just trying to think the best way for anyone to kind of contact. Maybe if they, if you're interested, maybe contact Shabazz. <laughs> yeah. Or, the or I'll get some links, uh, put them in the description for you down yeah, below. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, so, once yeah. we've got a link to our website, then we can put it in there. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for you, oh. <laughs> for talking to me. And I, and I hope it wasn't too bad. So thank you. Uh, no, thank you very much. It's been uh, been very nice chatting to you, Shabazz. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs>